Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Voorst, and I'm also one of the pastors at Life Church. I want to thank you for listening today, and if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or at least share it with others if this has been meaningful content to you. At Life Church, we like to say we are driven by new life, and we see new life happen in a variety of different ways. It could be one movement closer to Jesus. It could be a hurting marriage starting to experience hurt healing. It could be serving someone for the very first time and seeing true joy in that other person's eyes, or, or it could be someone getting baptized to proclaim that they want to follow Jesus with their whole lives. But here's the thing. Much of that is made possible because of the contributions from people just like you. If you'd like to contribute to the work of Life Church, please visit our website at lifechurchcanton.org slash give. I want to turn your attention now to Pastor Daniel Fagbui, who keeps us on our journey through the letter to the Ephesian church. He takes us through a section on being imitators of Christ and what it looks like to actually follow Jesus and look like Jesus. And if you're listening and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the earlier sermons in this series, or at the very least, read the first few chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. Because if you're just starting here in this part of the series, it could potentially sound like Christianity is just simply behavioral modification. Just change your behaviors and your actions and be a good person. But that's not actually at the heart of the gospel message. There's so much more. But I've said enough for now. If you'd like to hear more about that or any other material, you can always email me at jared.vanvorst at lifechurchcanton.org. And I'll put my email on the show page so you can click on it and send me an email and uh, request to hear other material on this podcast. But for now, here's Pastor Daniel. Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome to Life Church Canton. My name is Daniel, and I am one of the teaching pastors here. Uh, welcome to our first time and return guests. We're happy that you're here with us. Uh, we're thankful that you're here worshiping with us. Would you let us know that you are here by typing I'm new in the, in the uh, comment section? We'd love to hear from you and see how we can serve you now and in the future. Also want to say welcome to my Life Church family. It's been a while since we've been able to congregate together and worship together. Missed you guys. I wish we were here together, but I'm thankful that we have this opportunity to talk and to talk about God's Word. I want to say happy Father's Day, too, to all the fathers out there. I hope you're celebrated. I hope your family cherishes you as a good father. And so we will be getting into our text this morning. Uh, This morning we'll be continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians part two of our series. In part one, we explored what it means to be chosen in Christ. And in this section here, we'll be exploring what it means to be united in Christ. In week one, we looked at what it meant for us to be chosen together. Uh, Pastor uh, Jared shared with us about how we are chosen in order to be united together with Christ and in Christ. He shared with us through God's word that we are called to do all that we can to maintain this unity at all costs. And last week, Pastor Nathan shared with us five important offices, five important voices, if you will, that Christ has given his church for her unity and her maturity. We learned that it's important for these voices to be represented among us so that we can withstand the onslaught of false teachings and false doctrines in our society and even in our church. Uh, Well, today we'll be unpacking further what it means to be united with Christ. And so before we do that, let's go to God in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we come to you at this time. We come to you knowing that we have a broken world. There's injustices everywhere. There's pain, there's suffering, there's confusion in our world. 
and even in our church. And Lord, we pray that you would be with us now. That the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. That we may do all things to the glory of God. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm excited to enter into God's Word with you this morning. Like many of you, I have been concerned about the health of the church. I've been concerned about the health of the church for so long. I have been even more and more concerned as time goes by. My concern has grown deeper about what's happening in the church. More and more, I'm reminded of how far we've deviated from what God has called us to be as a church, how far we've deviated from a biblical approach to life's issues. Conversations with Christians nowadays is all about feelings and emotions and preferences and not based on God's words. And in the rare occasion that we introduce God's word to the conversation, it's often taken out of context and misapplied. Rather than the Word of God being that objective truth that sifts and filters our thoughts and our actions, the Bible is often only used to bolster or support one's personal views and personal opinions. Whatever illusion we had about the sanctity of the church, whatever vision we had about the church being perfect, it's virtually non-existent, especially to those who are non-Christians, who look at us and see our disunity and question our faithfulness with each other and our faithfulness to our God. And folks, I can't say I disagree with their assessment. The church has allowed herself to be defined and driven by societal labels and constructs, constructs like political affiliations and cultural preferences, rather than the Word of God, her only true constitution, ratified by God Himself. You see, by nature, the church is countercultural. Yet a casual look at the history of the church will show that the church has always had a tendency towards compromise. The church is often given into compromise, bending to the prevailing thought or the culture or the customs of the day. Even now, we are more apt to call each other everything under the sun except a child of God, the one true label that actually matters. You see, our unity has and is under attack, under attack from without, uh, by the culture and the politics of the day, under attack from within, by our personal preferences and our biases. Oh, I often ask the question to myself. When I look at us as the church disunited, I ask, are we still the church? Are we still the bride of Christ? Are we still the household of God united in the Spirit? Where have we become ambassadors of our own gospel, more concerned about our genders than our faithfulness to God? The Word of God through the prophet Amos speaks to us, yells at us, even through the annals of history. Amos asked the rhetorical and very relevant question even now, can two walk together except they have an agreement? In other words, can we be unified if we don't have an agreement, if we don't have a common understanding? And what is that understanding that brings unity? It's the understanding of God and His Word. Our unity depends on our faith in God and our faithfulness to His Word. Therefore, any affiliation that we value more than our faithfulness to God and His Word undermines and erodes the very unity that makes us the church of God. We should not be known by the same discord and divisions that exist in our society. We shouldn't be known by the things that push and prod on our society. We should be driven by God's Word and God's truth. That's what unites us as a church. This is the impetus for Paul writing. This is the basis, the force behind Paul's letter to the Ephesians and even to us. He urges the Ephesians and us to be united at all costs, by any means necessary, 
and to not be driven by the same passions and defined by the same labels of those who don't know God. This brings us to our scripture today. We will be sort of walking through Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through chapter 5, verse 5. Having spent the last three chapters teaching the Ephesians about their position in Christ, Paul now transitions to teaching them about their practice in Christ. He moves from the indicatives, what they believe, their convictions, to the imperatives, how they are called to act in result of their beliefs. You see, we've been made a new person, a new people in Christ. And being a new person in Christ, well, folks, that comes with new characteristics, characteristics that are empowered and informed by the Spirit and the Word of God so that we can live them out. And see, in our text today, we will see three important characteristics, three major characteristics that should define us as people of God, three characteristics that are a part of who we are as Christians, as believers in Christ, as one body. You see, as new people in Christ, the Spirit, first of all, empowers us to have godly cognition. It empowers us to think like God, to do the things of God, to process like God. The Spirit also empowers us, secondly, to have godly conversation, to speak like God, to speak godly, gracious words to each other, truthful words, but gracious. And thirdly, the Spirit empowers us to have godly conduct. In other words, the Spirit empowers us to think right, talk right, and walk right. The characteristics that are given to us by new birth are empowered by the Spirit of God that we may live in unity with God and with each other. Having spent the last five, five chapters, uh, five, last three chapters talking about our cognition and who we are, who we are called to be, the very character of God, Paul begins to lay out how you're meant to act. He laid out five spiritual leadership offices, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, and the teacher. And he says that these gifts have been given to us by Christ for our maturity and, of course, for our unity. The apostle now proceeds. He proceeds now to give divine instructions, instructions that he says are coming directly from God for our unity. You know, as we look at those offices, we talk about how we've all been gifted in in different ways. And perhaps today you'll get to hear the teacher. Perhaps you get to hear God's Word being taught to you, that it may hit our very soul. These instructions, Paul says, are specifically from God. Look at verse 17 through 19. Paul says, Now I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of your minds, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Verse 19, they have become callous and given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says, I testify. In the old black church, we would say, testify about the goodness of God. So I testify that this is a solemn oath before Jesus and before you. Paul testifies that these instructions are not only sanctioned by God, but sent by God. Paul testifies that you should no longer walk as Gentiles do. I testify that many of us, like the Gentiles, used to live far from God, didn't care about the things of God. You see, the divine indictment in all humanity is that apart from God, our minds are crowded and controlled by futile, useless, and empty thoughts, things that at best have no eternal value, and at worst they harm and destroy life and therefore are not pleasing to God. I testify that Gentiles, those who are far away from God, are darkened in their understanding. 
Now, this is not to say that humans apart from God are incapable of thinking, saying, and doing good things. This isn't saying that we can't even on our good day do, bad, do godly things. In fact, the old people used to say even a broke clock is right twice a day. And that makes sense. So Paul isn't indicting all of humanity and say you have no good in you because God has made us with some natural goodness. Paul isn't discounting or ignoring the natural intelligence or basic morality of human beings. No, what Paul is saying, human intelligence, however great it is, cannot truly comprehend and appreciate the things of God. Paul is saying here, is so far as human reason fails and falls short of the knowledge of God, then human reason is dark and blind, alienated from the life of God. What does that mean? Well, there's at least two ways that the Bible speaks about life. First, there's natural life. We all have this. Then there's supernatural life. Here's the distinction. Natural life, we all have access to that. All of us human beings have received the gift of life. We can enjoy the good things of life, the great things of life, even though those things are limited and temporal, even though those things are incomplete and will never completely fill that hole that we have. We still have access to life, but there is supernatural life. That life is different. You see, that life belongs to those who know God. That life belongs to those who God has chosen to reveal himself to. This belongs to those who are no longer blind to the things of God or to God himself because he's put his spirit in them to reveal himself. Paul provides then a series of causes and effects to explain the depraved state of humanity. You see, as a good lawyer, Every time I say as a good lawyer, I always think about that commercial, as a good uh, insurance, State Farm is there. That's not what I was talking about. But as a good lawyer, Paul is there. Paul is laying down the case. Paul says, the futile way of thinking, the futile mindset that humans have apart from God, that's because the understanding of the human is darkened apart from God. And that darkened understanding comes from an alienation from God. That alienation from God then moves into ignorance of God. And that ignorance, which is due to a dark heart, Paul says, you're darkened because you're far from God. And you're far from God because you're ignorant of God. And you're ignorant of God because your heart is hard. What does he mean by heart? The Greek word translated heart here is the Greek word cardia. It's where we get the word cardiac arrest from, uh, you know, cardiograms, all these other words from. You see, the Greek culture, the Greek and Hebrew culture that the Bible was written in saw the word heart as we see the word mind. It understands it that way. And so from, from the Greek mindset, from the biblical mindset, the heart is the seat of the human will. It is the seat of the human personality. This is decision central where all decisions are made. This is the command center for all thoughts, understandings, beliefs, motives, and actions. This is where things get made. This is where the cookie gets cooked. At the end of all this, Paul says, there lies a hard heart. The heart houses all of our vices. Look in verse 31. Paul says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and malice, let it go away from you. Remove that from you. Jesus says, out of the heart comes all of these vile things. So what then is a hard heart? We know that the heart is basically the mind, the command central of all things. Then what does it mean to have a hard heart? It means simply this is a heart that's not receptive to God. Now, unless you think, Christian, that this doesn't apply to you, this is not just a heart that fully rejects God, but this is also a heart that rarely considers God in all of their desires and their decisions. Coming home. Let's ask this question. 
Do you consider God in all your desires and in all your decisions? Do you? If you can answer that perfectly, you're superhuman. You're super. I struggle with considering God in all of my desires and my decisions. That's why we have to go back to what God says. Do you ask yourself, what would God have me do? Or do we decide and make decisions and assume God's blessings? Do we presume upon God that he just has to bless what we've done? You see, according to Paul, according to his testimony, authorized by God himself, the hard heart is what gives birth to ignorance of God. And that ignorance gives birth to alienation. And that alienation gives birth to futile way of thinking, or better yet, an ungodly cognition. The depraved heart, the Gentile heart, the heart that is apart from God, rejects God's truth. And this still happens today. Even at this point, all of our problems outside and even in the church can be traced to a hard heart. A heart that doesn't consider God in its conversations. Even conversations about God. In other words, at the heart of the issue is the heart. In other words, the heart is the heart of our disunity. The heart is the heart of our discrimination. The heart is the heart of our miscommunication. The heart is the heart of our division. I have a question for you. Whoever you are, how is your heart today? How is your heart this morning? Is your heart crowded with things that have no eternal value? Is your heart driven by passions and pursuits that are not pleasing to God? Is your heart filled with conflicting ideas and concepts that cloud your view of God? Or even better yet, is your heart burdened with good things, even godly things, that stop you from seeing God, that stop you from experiencing intimacy with God and experiencing the peace that is given to you in Christ? How is your heart this morning? In verse 19, Paul describes Gentiles as those who are callous to God. But they're callous to God, though, but guess what? They're sensitive to everything apart from God. They are driven by their senses, what sounds, what tastes, what smells, what looks, and what feels good. Not what God objectively says is good, which if you know the Bible, most of the times is against what we think is good. Paul says life apart from God, this life that is apart from God, is disconnected from God, is characterized by an indulgence in self-gratification without regard for others and without regard for God. You see, the word greedy here that's used in this passage, it speaks of an increasing desire, desire for more and more and more of everything else other than God. The point here is that sinful passions, desires apart from God, those desires that are apart from God will never be satisfied. This is the way of the world, to be led by one's senses, not by the Spirit of God. This is the old self that we are asked to, to take off and leave behind so that we can live in our new self in Christ. You see, Paul urges the Ephesians and even urges us, put on the new self and live in light of your new position in Christ. Look at verse 20 through 22. Paul says it this way, but this is not the way you have learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and been taught in him. Because truth, absolute truth, is in Jesus. So put off the old self, which belongs to your former way of living, your former way of life, and is being corrupted through deceitful desires. Paul says put off and put on. 
The point of these verses is simple. Comprehensive truth is only found in Christ. And this means that this truth is a revolutionary truth. It's not just informational, it's transformational. It changes the very heart of the human being. This transformation moves us from our former way of thinking into our new way of thinking. This is what Paul means by putting off the old self and putting on the new self. But how do I do this, preacher man? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 23 and 24. Paul says it this way, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, in true justice and purity. You see, the act here of being renewed, it's an ongoing process. In the original language, it's this ongoing renewing of one's mind. In other words, we are meant to keep on renewing our minds. Keep on renewing the spirit of our minds. But what does Paul mean by the spirit of our minds? Here it means the inner part of our minds, <clears throat> the, the, the core of our minds, the hidden parts of our mind, the parts that you and I can't get to. This is not just conscious biases. This is not just implicit or explicit biases. This is subconscious biases, stuff that is beyond your consciousness. The Word gets to it. This renewal is only done by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. For more on this, you can look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, talks about how the Spirit enters into the crevices of one's mind and soul and is able to unearth that soul so it can be open to the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does this through His Word. This is how we keep from becoming callous or numb to God. You know, the interesting about, thing about being numb is that it takes the Word of God to reveal to you that you're numb to the Word of God. It's a funny thing. It's until you get in front of God's Word And that objective truth now hits your heart, that you're able to now reason within yourself and say, by God's grace, I was numb. Sometimes that's too late. Just ask Samson. Read about that. I have a question for you. Are you renewing your mind daily? Are you? Are you renewing your mind daily? Or have you become numb to the things of God? Or are you living one leg in the old self and one leg, the other leg in the new self? This brings us to our second characteristic, the second characteristic of our new self in Christ. The Spirit empowers us to have godly conversation. Look at verse 25 and 26. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then the verse that most people know, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no room to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. We are instructed to not deceive each other, but to speak truth and to keep no grudges. Simply put, we are called to look at Christ as our example. Paul establishes here that Christ is the truth, and truth is only found in Christ and what the Bible teaches about Christ, so that any other truth other than biblical truth is false as it eats at our unity. It erodes the unity that we have, especially in times of disagreement, which, amen, we have some now. This is the backdrop of this passage that the Jews and the Gentiles were disagreeing over the truth of God's Word, and neither were having a conversation based on God's Word, but it was based on preferences. So this begs the question, as it is then, it is now. In these hard moments of disagreements, Are you pointing people back to biblical truth, especially in these times? I want us to think about this. 
especially in the season that we're in in our church, are we looking to God's word for truth or are we looking to society or political parties to inform our truth? Is the Bible in its proper context guiding and guarding our conversations? You see, if the answer is no to any one of these questions, then the result is unrighteous anger and resentment towards each other. This gives room for the devil to have his way among us, to destroy whatever unity we have. Let me tell you, folks, I've been part of many churches that have broken up, and the overall theme is when they start to compromise God's Word, when they begin to show their own preferences as more important than God's Word. I've seen many churches' doors closed, great churches, good churches that were doing great kingdom work, because people chose to believe in themselves rather than in God. People chose to raise themselves up higher than the Word of God. So I plead with you. I beg you and I beseech you by the mercies of God, by Christ who made us one body, don't let anything come between us. Let truth guide us. Let God's Word guide who we are. Fight for the unity of the faith. Give it all for the unity in the body of Christ. Not uniformity, but unity. <clears throat> Let us speak truth and receive truth from each other. Let's avoid what, call, what Paul calls corrupt conversations. What are these? These are conversations that grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the very source of our unity. Look with me in verse 29 and 30. Look what Paul says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Simply put, Paul says, we're not to speak words that are intended to tear each other down. We're not to speak words that rot at people's soul. We are to speak true words, words that do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but words that give grace. Notice that Paul emphasizes here, the reason we speak truth is because we owe it to each other. We owe it to each other, and this is pleasing to God. This brings us to our third and final characteristics. The characteristics of our new self, God's Spirit empowers us to have godly conduct. Look at verse 28. Let no one, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, do an honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Now, I know that this is a no-die moment. I know that this is no-die because Christians know that we are called to not steal. But this goes further. This says we are to work in order to be able to help those who are less fortunate. You see, a thief takes from other people for his own personal benefit. But Christians, Christians are called to work so that we can benefit others. This passage has implications, though, implications that go beyond generic theft or generic stealing from each other. At the core of this exhortation to not steal, at the core of this command to not steal, is a heart that is selfish, a heart that is selfish, that's concerned about its own needs and wants and desires. This is the very opposite of the character of God. Jesus was by nature selfless and self-given. Whether it's our cognition, conversation, or conduct, we are called to imitate the truth about who Christ is. And that brings us to what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 5. We are to be imitators of God. You know, when we're talking through this, Pastor Jared had mentioned that, you know, when I think of imitation in the Bible, I always remember about the impersonators, the comedians who impersonate. And think about what they do. They study the person. 
every mannerisms, every micro expression to get it down to a T. Some people can do the person better than the person themselves. Think about that. Are we observing Christ? Are we looking and studying all his mannerisms, his micro expressions? Are we picking up traits so much so that they cannot distinguish us from Christ? Paul says we are to be imitators of Christ. But how do we do this, Paul? Look at verse 32 of of chapter 4 all the way through verse 5 of chapter 5. Verse 32 says we are to be imitators of God by what? By being kind to one another. Being kind to one another. You know what that means in Greek? Kind. Same thing it means in English. To be kind to one another. How are we supposed to do this, Paul? To be kind to one another, then to be tender-hearted to one another. It's interesting that the text earlier talks about having a hard heart, and now Paul is saying, no, have a soft heart towards each other. And that soft heart towards each other only comes by having a soft heart towards God's Word. Thirdly, Paul says in verse 32, we are to be forgiven of one another. As who? As Christ forgave us, given us forgiveness. Look at, verse, look at chapter 5, look at verse 2 through 5. He goes further about what it means to imitate, to observe, to follow, to, obse- to, to be obs- uh, observant of who Christ is in your daily walk. He says, we do this by walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. What does that mean? It means that our walk, our conduct, our speech, our thinking is characterized by the love of God and the love of people. Secondly, he says that we are to be moral and unselfish with each other. You know, I remember growing up and I remember the pastors who had fallen to some kind of immorality or or gotten out of office, and you see how it affects the entire church. Or if, if anybody in the body loses a loved one or there's a divorce in the family in a small group or something, it affects the entire body. Our morality personally affects the entire body. We ought to be thinking about how our actions in and outside of the church affect the church of God. The godly conduct that we've been asked to have, it produces what Paul says, a fragrant aroma to God. It pleases God. It's pleasing to God's nostrils. This is anthropomorphic. This is not to intend that God's nostrils is there and he's smelling things. This means that God is happy. And let me tell you something. We were talking about Father's Day. If you make your father happy today, watch what happens next week. What does it look like when God is happy over us? What does it look like when God is joyful over us? Does he not pour out his spirit even more in our midst? Are we not holding each other back from experiencing the greatness of God when we're not pleasing to him? When our lifestyle as a church grieves the Holy Spirit? In conclusion, Those who have been made new in Christ are empowered by the Spirit of God to have godly cognition, to have godly conversation, and to have godly conduct. This is how we truly become unified, not because we explore only grace and not truth, or not because we explore only truth and not grace, but because we apply grace and truth to every situation. And that truth is God's Word, which brings grace to our soul has some action steps for us to help us flesh this out. Here's my first action step. I want to encourage you to use these three characteristics to guide and guard your conversation this week. I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you, whether you're online or in person, wherever you find yourself, to inspect your thoughts, your words, and your actions and see if they line up with these godly characteristics. Ask yourself, perhaps, is my thinking, talking, and walking Governed by God's Word, 
or is it governed by my emotions and my feelings about things? Emotions are fine. Feelings are great so far as they bow to God's truth. Secondly, I want you to commit to renewing your mind daily in God's Word. I want you to see that as an ongoing maintenance of your soul. And whenever I think about this, whenever I think about uh, committing to God's Word, I think quality over quantity. It's not about the amount of time you spend. It's the quality of it. You could spend five minutes of focused, intentional time with God, and that trumps hours and hours of reading and studying God's Word that's not focused or intentional. version is important here. version can be a help, whether written or audio. Look, I spend so much time talking about version. I feel like they owe me something at this point. But it's a great app. It's helpful. It teaches you. It shows you 900 different translations of the Bible. Pick one that makes sense to you and get in God's Word and get God's Word into you. <clears throat> and then thirdly, I want to encourage you to stand by for the digital lobby, for prayer and for fellowship. And you may be here, you may say, I don't need prayer and I don't need any fellowship. Well, I want to encourage you to move out of that selfness and move into understanding that you are part of a community. Somebody needs your prayer. Somebody might be looking for your fellowship. Enjoy it together and let's let God's word govern our actions. And maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. And it's hard to invite you to Christ after talking about the disunity that might, ex- that might exist in the church. But it's still the, ga- the greatest game in town, folks. Christ died for you. God gave his only son that you may have eternal life. Whatever place you find yourself, whatever situation you are in, there's only one God. He's the only one that can save you. You can have all the things you have in this life. You can profit from all the things you have, but at the very end, you stand before God and he tells you, why should I let you into my heaven? You have to give an account for that. For those of us who believe in Christ, we know the answer is Jesus. You know, earlier this week, we were talking and one of my brothers, Pastor Rich, was talking about how reminding us of a scripture that says that, man, we are blessed to know that there's more than just this world. Because if all that we have is this world, if all that we have is the pains and the sufferings that we've gone through in this world, and there is no afterlife, then folks, as far as I'm concerned, we might as well pack it up now. But I'm thankful that God has made a plan for you and for me. And all you've asked to do is to not be intellectually dishonest, but to apply the same studiousness that you would do any study, especially to study for where your soul lies, If you have questions, we know a God who is the answer. And we will welcome you into him. We will introduce you to him and give you all the information you need. But at the end of the day, you've got to make that first step to let us know. If God's working on your heart now, we want to hear from you. And maybe there are others of you who are like, preacher man, I need you to get out the way. I'm ready to talk to God. Amen. And maybe I can lead you in this prayer. And this prayer applies to those of us who are new to the faith, those who are trying to come into the faith, and those who are already in the faith for a while. Lord, I submit to you that I have sinned and come short of your glory. And that even as a Christian, I rarely consider you in my conversations. I rarely consider you in my cognition, my thinking. I definitely rarely consider you in my actions. I fooled myself to thinking that whatever is good with me and good to me is good to you rather than allowing for your word to sift and filter my actions, my thoughts, and my deeds. 
So Lord, I surrender to you now. And for those who are knowing Christ for the first time, if you prayed that prayer, we want to connect with you and walk this walk with you. Because when we talk about unity, folks, that means you have not been designed to do this life by yourself. Let us know how we can serve you in this process. And I plead with you again, people of God, fight. Hold on tight to the truth of God's word. Maintain the unity of the faith at all cost. And that means speaking truth in grace to each other. And Father, we pray that our time today would be honoring to you. That your word will go beyond our wildest dreams to the very hearts of all of us, both the preacher and the hearers. That your name may be glorified personally in our lives that we may submit our wills, our personal agendas, our political affiliations, our thoughts, our labels, that we may surrender all that to you. And that your spirit would empower us to think right, talk right, and walk right. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.